Hello, hello, this is Wilson Nowitzki in Hanover, Germany, with the second installment of the Druff Records podcast, where I talk to different musicians, primarily in the uh, realm of improvised music, I should say. I guess I don't know what to call that realm, because it did not come readily to mind. Um, Yeah, Brad is also a very, very close friend of mine, a very old friend of mine, but strangely enough, a great mystery to me because I cannot figure out how Brad does all the things that he does. He's an incredible guitar player. He's also quite good at the drums. I believe he took up the flute. Brad, at some point, decided to start working on pedals or amps or something, and now he's building replicas of sought-after microphones and compressors or something like that. Brad, I believe as his very first woodworking project ever, built the Bunker Studio, or at least helped to build it, in Brooklyn, New York. I've been in there, there's no right angles in the place, and every single angle and piece of wood, I believe, is measured down to the fraction of a millimeter that achieves the best acoustical results, all worked out somehow by Brad. So, Brad is one of these guys. When I go over to his house, I get the impression that actually the only thing he cares about is playing old Nintendo games or watching reruns of 227. So it's very mysterious to me. I would love to know how Brad does everything that he does. In any case, it's not important. That's his business. He's a wonderful musician, great friend. And uh, I went back and listened to our conversation and found that there was something in the conversation, or in the topic of the conversation, which uh, had to do with the form of the conversation, or at least has to do with the form of how I uh, have decided to present the conversation. We were talking about improvising, and we were talking uh, very much about the uh, feeling that one gets with music or with presenting music, um, of the, the feeling of judging it or, or, or being in the moment of, of, of making it and, and uh, having the feeling that it should somehow be different than it is. And um, of course, almost immediately after we had the conversation, I listened back to it. And of course, this editing mind came in. I thought, well, here we're rambling and here we're off topic and, uh, and here uh, um, I'm not enunciating very well and so forth. So I thought, well, here's how I will cut this up so that it sounds great. But then I got busy and had a bunch of other stuff to do and didn't have a chance to get back to it for a couple weeks. And I listened to it again today. And uh, I realized, you know, actually, I would rather just present the entire conversation, uh, warts and all, because that's what we were talking about. We were talking about... um, stepping back from this form of self-judgment, self-editing. So I decided just not to edit the conversation, just as much as I've decided not to edit this introduction. Poor enunciation and all. So uh, it's about an hour and 45 minutes. Um, Brief bio on Brad. Brad grew up with me in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, Studied at the University of North Texas. Studied uh, somewhere in New Jersey, I forgot also, and uh, lives in Brooklyn in a beautiful little house. 
and um, works with Brittany Howard, works with Jose James, has worked with Corey Henry, has worked with CC Wines as a musician, um, and does quite a lot of work uh, in the studio. I believe he does everything imaginable that one can do in the studio, um, from production to building microphones or whatever he's up to. Uh, Brad has an incredible collection of clothing, and we also talk about his early interest in his parents' clothing. So I'm rambling now, uh, certainly. Here is my dialogue with Brad, uh, Jesus Christ, can't even say his name, Brad Allen Williams. Recording. Nice, man. Can you hear me okay? How's my stuff? Yeah, it's great. I took your advice. I got one of those blue, 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 the Yeti. Nice. Yeah, those are those are great for like, you know, I can't remember how much they are, but they're not an extremely large amount of money and they work great. Yeah, I bought it like everything else used. Hey, to, to test your ears this year, it has four different capsules. Can you tell which um, which one I'm using? Um are you how close are you about one foot away are you in omni no does it sound like it no i don't know is it cardioid yeah just the cardioid yeah yeah cool my oh god everything about my office is like makes my back hurt the computer and the microphone are sitting on top of some kind of a square shaped Jimbe bass drum thing, which I use as my um, desk, and oh, it has nice. me in this hunched over position, which is just everything about I don't know everything about everything just makes my back hurt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the joys of being well. I'm 40 now. Yeah, I thought you're not 41 yet. No, September. Oh, are we? We're that close in age. I think so because I was one grade ahead of you, but I was like the youngest person in my grade. Oh, we're oh okay, so we're only a few months apart. Yeah. Nice, Maine. Well, I'm 42. I'm, I mean, I'm 40 as well. Also, yeah. Well, that's not Russian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. Uh, I definitely have the feeling now that I'm 40 that I don't give a fuck about as many things. <laughs> i'm working on that i've spent a lot of um time giving the fuck about a lot of things in my life and i'm the more i can manage to give fewer fucks the happier i am so i'm working on it yeah man yeah you should try having a kid then you won't give a fuck about anything <laughs> yeah i wonder because i feel like i'm definitely prone to um anxiety so i feel like i would just imagine all the ways that things for my kid would be dangerous and spend my entire life stressed out yeah yeah that happens yeah but then there's also the other instinct uh which compels you to like encourage the kid to do dangerous things (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah. i had a thought about this you know when when janos was a baby i remember i was like throwing him up in the air Mm-hmm. And then I thought, like, if you gave me, like, uh, a sack of potatoes, and it was like a voodoo sack of potatoes, and you said, like, anything that happens to this sack of potatoes will happen to your child, 
then I would just carefully lay it down on the sofa. You know what I mean? And if anybody like threw it around, I would punch them in the face. You know what I mean? Yeah, but yeah. then I thought, well, why do I do it with the actual kid? You know? <laughs> yeah. It's related to the concept of like when we were building the studio, we would be on these scaffolds and like the scaffold is like, I don't know, two or three feet wide, you know? And it's like being like 20 feet up in the air, like, even taking one tiny step on that scaffold felt like I'm going to fall. I'm definitely going to fall if I'm not extremely careful. Yeah. But if you put the, that exact same platform on the ground, like I could like, if, if you put something half that width and five times as long on the ground, I could run from one end to the other without ever stepping off of it. But yeah, right. Put it, put it way up in the air and somehow the entire thing changes, you know? I know. What is that instinct that makes us less capable of dealing yeah. in the life or death? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't know, man. Yeah, instincts, man. Yeah. Instincts. Oh, God. Yeah, man. Man, I'm looking forward to this. What are we going to talk about? I do not know. You know, I don't know if you know, but I uh, have converted my studio halfway into an espresso bar. Yeah, I saw that. And I mean, it's still half of it is still a studio and I still have a... Um, you know, I'm still registered as a business, as a music teacher, but uh, I mean, I'm not allowed to teach right now anyway. I mean, I could teach online, but I don't feel like it. Yeah. And uh, so I, yeah. Yeah. So I opened an espresso bar. I have this, I'm on this really nice corner where there's a lot of foot traffic and I have these really great windows right on a sort of a, right on the corner of a sidewalk. And so I just sell the shit right out the window, which also, you know, right now in Germany, or at least where I live, uh, the restaurants are closed for anything except for takeout, you know? Right. Yeah. So, but I am allowed to sell out of the window. So um, it's kind of perfect for me. Um, business has been really good. I don't think I'm going to go back to teaching. Really? If you're listening to the podcast and you happen to be a student of mine, <laughs> <laughs> ignore that. Oh, is the podcast happening already? Nah, it's That's just recording. I'll edit it. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. It's a funny thing. I don't know. Uh, I mean, you you never you never were doing teaching, but uh, no. Uh, I mean, it's a. Well, but maybe you can relate to it with other aspects of working on music professionally. Like, I always feel like with teaching, uh, if I'm teaching some, it's good for me as a musician, mm. you know. But if I'm teaching too much, it's bad for me because mm. I just get burnt out, you know. Yep. Uh, yeah, like not teaching more is a thing that, um, it's that classic, like never get good at something you don't want to do very much, you know? Yeah. And it's sort of like building recording gear or like, or, um, you know, fixing amps or whatever, or any other thing that I've kind of done. Yeah. If I, if it becomes too much a part of what I do. Like I lose interest in it very quickly. And then I start to feel trapped by it very quickly, you know? Yeah. 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 Well, maybe you should tell me now that, you know, this is a podcast featuring Brad. I am uh, Alan Williams. Uh, and strangely enough, I don't really know. I've always wondered about this. Like I always wonder, like, what does Brad do from one day to the next? Like what? I mean, I know that things are different right now. Corona shit, yeah. but imagine that it's like a year and a half ago like what the hell do you do yeah well i have to think about that myself so i guess kind of like i mean you know i've known you for oh, 
what, 20, almost a quarter century now, if you really mm-hmm. want to take it down. Yeah, like really 25 years. Yeah. yeah. And um, I think kind of the only thing that I ever was interested in was music, but like within that was extremely broad. So I kind of like anything that has to do specifically with making records is like, I want to know about it, you know? So like a lot, like if I'm on tour, I'm obviously on tour or whatever, but if I'm home and I'm working on a, maybe sometimes I'll be working on a project. Sometimes I mix records. Sometimes I produce sometimes I, but then like, if I just have some time off, I'm generally just trying to figure out something that I don't know yet, you know? Um, And that might be like, one time I was like, well, how do, how do you build a microphone? So I had to figure that out. And then yeah, but but I remember the, when you did that, like the first microphone you built was some replica of some sought after. Yeah. Cause I, well, I, I wanted one really bad and I couldn't afford it. And I also wanted to know how to do it. So yeah. I did that, you know, and I don't know, I just go off on these little tangents where it's like, um, I'm not really very good at focusing sometimes. What? That cannot be possible. I had thought about what, how could I be more like Brad Williams? I could focus better. This is. Yeah. Well, like I, I'll put it this way. I don't have, I'm not, I don't do very well with sustained purposeful focus. Like what? That strikes me as being the utter opposite of what I expect. Well, for me, it's like, I have, sust- I have brief bursts of like, obsessive compulsive mania you know where i like i like have to stay up and not sleep for four days straight and learn everything there is to learn about this one thing and then i burn myself out and then i do nothing having to do with that thing for like two years oh yeah it's a good thing you're married it would be a disaster if you applied that same approach to (laughs) relationships yeah 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 oh man I, you know, but the, the, the thing that always struck me about you is that you, uh, you seem to remember things hmm. like I have this, you know, I, I may be similar to you, maybe not the same degree, but you know, I I've gotten in the last few years into reading and I have certain, uh, some history. I like reading history now. And I, I kind of like to focus on, specific, I have a weird fascination with the Balkans. I don't know why, hmm. but I mean, just as an example, like just a couple months ago, I read a very fascinating, like five or 600 page biography of Sultan Salim of the Ottoman Empire. And it was a really interesting book. And I was really into it when I was reading it. And I had just finished it like a month ago. And if you ask me like, Wilson, tell me like anything about Sultan Salim. I can't tell you anything. But here's the thing, right? You said something earlier about how if if you teach a little bit, it's really good you know? And that's where I think it comes in. Like, I also like part of my personality is that like, if I learn something and I'm excited about it, I want to share it, you know? So it's like, if I learn something new, I want to like document it on uh, social media posts or like document it on a message board, like building a microphone. I like documented the whole process, you know, and shared it. And, or if it's like, I learned something interesting about music, like I want to like, you know, text one of my friends and be like, I just figured out this, you know? And I think that helps me retain stuff more than anything, because like, mm-hmm. like just the other day, sort of similar to what you're talking about, like Molly and I had watched a, a film and now I can't even remember what movie it was, but she's like, do you remember in this movie when this, I'm like, I don't remember anything about that movie, but we watched it like a year ago. And I just, but like, I never, 
I never thought about or talked about that film again after we watched it. And I right. think, you know. Right. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's classic pedagogy. Like you yeah. have to make people reproduce. Uh, yeah, what they've learned. That's yeah. definitely true. That's definitely true. I've had that a lot of, um, yeah, I've had that a lot in my personal life um, where I can remember something about my own well maybe something about my own feelings or kind of something i was going through years ago even though i have no memory of going through the thing i have a memory of telling somebody about how i felt at that time you uh, know what i mean yeah and so that's the only reference but well i remember that i once said to so-and-so that i was feeling this way so i guess i must have felt that way you know what i mean yeah that's actually very like kind of a powerful concept when you think about it that like that relates to music too and like improvising and producing and everything is that like the only thing that really matters is the feeling you know and and like that that's the thing or that's the thing that imprints you know um even if nobody remembers exactly like i think it's very common for me to remember a way i felt when watching or hearing somebody play And I don't remember like what, maybe they were playing a tune and I don't remember what tune they were playing, but like, I remember the impression that I took away, you know? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I remember, um, there's a couple of concerts, uh, where I feel this way that also had very much to do with seeing the person, you know, mm. where seeing the person gave a one, one, for example, you know, is, um, I saw a solo. You know the saxophonist Evan Parker? Uh-huh. British free jazz guy. And uh, I saw him give a solo concert at the Stone. And you mm -hmm. know, the Stone is this really, really small room. And um, he was just solo. And uh, yeah, the same. That was years ago. I almost never listened to Evan Parker. You know, I don't even like... Yeah, I think I would not listen to Evan Parker at home. Right. Uh, But that concert like changed my it changed my life. And even when I'm playing, sometimes I uh, if I feel uninspired, I sometimes just get an image of that concert in my mind. And I you know, and then suddenly the yeah the somehow the weird impression, the feeling impression comes back. Hmm. And uh, like I said, I don't like sit around and listen to Evan Barker. <laughs> right. Well, do you have any interest in like the other things besides the literal sounds being made that impact that impression? In other words, like, I feel like sometimes I can see somebody play and just by like watching the intensity with which they work, like right. um, even even if I like if the sound were off, like if I could somehow be there and, and hear nothing at all. I would still be engaged just by watching the intensity with which they're engaged with the work they're doing, you know? Oh, absolutely. I had that one time with the drummer. Um, shit, what's his name? The guy that plays with Tortoise. Damn. Uh, John, John McIntyre? Yeah, that guy. Yeah. He was uh, playing in that band, The Sea and Cake. And uh, this was back in the Denton days. And I, I saw them at Trees at uh, Dallas. That was a funny night for a different reason, but I won't get into it. But, uh, you know, the sea and cake, the music is very soft. And uh, the, the drumming style, it kind of was reminiscent of like bossa nova, soft and pretty repetitive, you know. And like, I mean, he's such a great drummer. And I thought, well, you know, this is not I wouldn't think of that as being music that's for him somehow on the drums. 
challenging. You know what I mean? But um, Jesus, he, he was so focused. I couldn't take my eyes off him. He was mm. so focused. It was really magnetic, you know? And I thought it was really, really inspiring to me too, you know, at that time to think like, oh man, I should never think that there's a type of playing which is so simple that it doesn't require or that it wouldn't benefit from that degree of focus. Or that just like, why not? If you're up there doing it, like why shouldn't you be focused? You know what I mean? It was yeah. like, why would you just brush it off? You know, like you're doing it. So that was really inspiring to me. Yeah, I think there's like, um, well, there's so many different directions we could go off conversationally off of that. But like, I think that there are a lot of things that I've come to understand about various, like, I guess you could say like traditions of, of playing or whatever that I feel like I understood from actually seeing it happen in a way that I never grasped from listening to it on records for some reason, you know, right, right. it's like, like sort of like what you're talking about. Like I had an impression maybe of something being one way. And then like, when you see it happening and you see the intensity of what's going down, it like, it's not it, like, it makes a lot of things make sense somehow, you know? Right. Right. I'm unfortunately repeating something now that I already mentioned on the uh, last week when I was talking to Adam Kane, but I had also the opposite effect when I saw um, uh, Philip Glass, where he was the opposite. He looked so much more uh, humorous and mm. than I would have thought from listening to the music. And mm. I got I talked to him a bit after the concert, and he was like really ch like kind of funny, you know. Mm. And and it was sort of the opposite. But I saw you know the drummer Hamid Drake. Yeah, I saw that guy also once in a trio with Peter Brussman and some vibraphone player. And uh, you know this word, I was reading some jazz interview um, um, years ago. I can't remember what, who the musician was. Uh, I think it was, no, it was Art Blakey. Mm -hmm. And he was using the word um, comportment. Mm -hmm. He was talking about younger musicians and their comportment. Mm -hmm. And I was, that word was going through my head when I saw Hamid Drake. He's, and before he even went to the stage, he was just, just his posture, even just like off stage, his posture and his whole bearing. I thought this guy has comportment, man. And yeah. there was something really sacred about the guy, but not 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 pretentious. Mm -hmm. The guy just seemed integrated. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it was such a funny contrast to the group. There was a the vibraphonist, I don't know who he was, but he was quite younger than the other two. And he was good. His playing was cool, but he was really like really hectic, spastic. And that's all right. And like Evan Parker is I mean not Evan Parker. Um Peter Brotzman is like super intense. So they were all in contrast to each other, you know, but this Hamid Drake just looked like a, it was, it was more like it had this feeling like not so much this feeling like I want to play like him, but this feeling like I want to be like him. Yeah. Right. As yeah. A, he just like exuded this human, human. So it, this integrated thing, you know, I was like, wow. Enough. Yeah, it's sort of in, I wouldn't say in contrast with that, but like kind of a different manifestation of that. I think it was like probably 2003, I saw Roy Haynes play or maybe 2004 in Addison, Texas at the Addison Jazz Festival in this outdoor tent. And it was with uh, John Patitucci and Danilo Perez. Mm. Uh, and I, they were on stage and Roy Haynes wasn't there yet for some reason. Maybe he was like playing on another stage. And so the whole audience was sitting there and was just kind of like waiting on Roy Haynes to show up. And then all of a sudden, because it was in a tent, he sprints from the back of the tent. He was probably like eight. Like how old is Roy Haynes now? In 2004, he's old. 
he would have been in his 80s probably. He is like 100 now. Close to, yeah. And he sprints from the back, jumps up onto this like about two and a half foot stage, like in a single bound and just kind of like lands behind the drums like, all right, here we go. And it just set the tone for the whole concert. And, and I bet he was dressed sharp as hell, right? Oh, Roy Haynes is always to this day dressed sharp as hell, yeah. <laughs> oh man, that's just a riot, man. But also like if you look at old videos of... um. And this just kind of goes to show how powerful certain things are. Like if you look at old videos of Billy Higgins, he's always smiling, right? Or old photos like Billy Higgins had a big grin when he was playing. And um, I remember when I was first kind of starting to learn to play the drums in college, I wanted to be like Billy Higgins. So I would like try to force a smile when I played, Mm. but I never, it never, all it, all it was for me at that time was just one more thing to remember, you know? But lately in my practice of guitar, I've been spending a lot of energy, really only all of my energy I've been spending kind of on like body awareness, if that makes sense. And like where, where I'm holding tension and how that's impacting the sounds that come out. Mm-hmm. And I've learned that like, if I can like, if I get to a point where I can actually manage to sound good to myself, to like to not be overcritical of what I'm doing in my practice time and actually just kind of have fun playing, I'll start to smile naturally. And when I do, it changes the way I sound and it changes the way I play and it changes the way I feel when it's like an actual authentic, like if I just like I'm having fun and break into a smile and I notice it, like I notice it because things start to sound different when I do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's very weird. Yeah, man. But yeah, honestly, you know, I think about this so much with music, like if you don't feel good, what the hell is the point? Right. <laughs> it's just yeah. other than it's just sounds other than that, you know. And also it's called like talking about like time and like just like rhythmic feel, like it's called feel, you know? It's, it's called feel for a reason. Like if it doesn't physically feel good, it's never gonna like, you know, groove or whatever word you want to use. But you know, this is, I mean, this is, this is something I work with my students a lot. And well, this is, this is one of those things that's good for teaching because um, like I'm always telling my students or, or hounding on my students to do things, which I have a very hard time staying true to myself when I'm alone. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, uh, oh my God, it's the hardest thing. Like, I've, I've, I've often told my students, I always joke with them and I say like, you know, I, re- I really feel like I don't, I could replace myself as a teacher with just a giant flashing neon sign on the wall that says play slower. Right. And like, I could just leave the room, you yeah. know what I mean? And, uh, and I'm always also telling them too, like, I, and I mean, it's amazing I, how much I have to say, like, I don't think that you are comprehending what I mean when I say slower. And it's amazing. I demonstrated here. I'm the teacher and I'm playing something like da da and they're going da 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 and I'm like why are you playing faster than me? Substantially faster than me. You know what I mean? But they can't help it, you know? And um or I you know, I talk to them of course about how's your breathing, you know, and I talk about, you know, how's your back? Like do you have any tension in your back? And this kind of stuff. But um I, when I sit around and practice, I am alone and I'm not practicing for anything. I have no upcoming concerts, recording things. I have to learn. I have nothing I have to play, you know? It's just for me. And so I tell myself, like, I'm, I, this is just for me. So here's like, 
I am not going to play past the, I'm not going to continue playing if I'm getting tense, if I'm clenching my jaw, holding my back tight, holding my breath, feeling nervous. And then I find myself feeling those feelings. And it's the goddamnedest thing to tell myself to to stop. You know what I mean? That's like a quarter so century of, of entrenched training that you're trying to like overcome. And it's, man, I am like, you could be me talking right now. Cause it's the, I go through the exact same thing. That's why I say like that sort of awareness is the only thing I ever practice anymore. Because yeah. I feel like if I could just get out of my own way, all the things that I want to do, because I'll look sometimes at the things that I'm struggling with and objectively in terms of motor skills, they're easy things to do. Like if you, it was like you were talking about earlier with the, with the baby versus the sack of the, the magical sack of potatoes. Yeah. If you took the guitar out of my hand and told me make these movements with this level of precision, I would not find it hard, difficult at all, you know? Right, right. Um, but I think, you know, there's, this is a thing that I notice a lot, sort of you talking about, like, I think for years, I never took practicing things slowly, seriously enough because I didn't understand why I was slowing down, you know, like, I thought that like, because it was slow, it was easy. And then I was going to gradually speed up. And it was like, mm -hmm. like no, a frog no. in boiling water or something. No, no, and no. it's like, and I, and it never worked. And so I never, but then it was only in my thirties that I figured out, well, I have, wait a minute, I'm slowing down so that I can observe what my body is doing. So mm -hmm. I can like understand what's actually happening so that I have the bandwidth to identify where the tension is like right. in the soles of my feet, the backs of my knees, my upper back, mm -hmm. like all these are places, my jaw mm -hmm. that like, like theoretically should have nothing to do with actually playing the instrument. But mm -hmm. for some reason they very much do. And they like, they just manifest. And it's like, it's only when I slow down that I can, that I have the, the mental bandwidth to actually make a point of, trying not to be aware and not, right. you know, be tense. Well, you know, I've been uh, giving this lots of thought in the last year. Uh, and a lot of this has been kind of backed up by two books. I finally, after all these years, after leaving Denton, I finally read that book, um, Effortless Mastery. Oh, yeah. And then uh, I also have been slowly picking through a book, which is a popular book in the last few years called um, Thinking Fast and Slow. Hmm. Um, uh, which is not a book about music, but about the book is about the guy basically lays out the idea that there's there's two separate thought systems. I mean, in a way, it's nothing new. It's uh, it's what some people might call the conscious and the subconscious, but or like uh, rational thinking versus sort of intuitive thinking. In any case, the point is, the point is, I'm now convinced that fast is not slow sped up. Right. It is a different system. Running is different from walking fast. It's not yeah. the same thing. Right. Yeah. And this whole way I used to practice with a metronome of starting slow and then doing a click faster, doing a click faster, doing a click faster. It's not, I'm convinced that there's no use. It's a quantum leap. Right. It goes from slow. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, I don't know how long I have to practice something slowly. And very often I have to sleep. I have to go to bed. Uh huh. And then it is suddenly fast. It's a difference of type, not of degree. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. And that's a thing that, you know, but that's, that's like, there are so many, I think there are so many well-meaning teachers and just people. And now I feel like, 
it's true more than ever because a lot of people get their instruction in kind of a diffuse way for it's like maybe they have a teacher but they're also like watching a ton of youtube videos and like reading a ton of forum posts or whatever and they're getting their information but through this sort of like broad diffuse and unfocused way but there's a lot of received wisdom that i think is risky and that's only one of them like a, in a similar vein another one that i that i hear all the time that i remember hearing in school is it's like maybe there's like a student group that's playing and there's like a talented soloist and they're playing too much you know they're overplaying mm-hmm. and there's like leave more space you oh know? man that one's murderous man yeah because it's like it's that's not like it means nothing right like well it means nothing to a person who doesn't have experience with knowing what it means well but i think that it's just communicating the wrong thing right because it's like what you really want to say is not it's not play less it's listen more you know because mm-hmm. like you know i mean god everybody from like coltrane to james jamerson to cecil taylor played incredibly dense and incredibly beautifully and musically mm-hmm. and in ways like you know with like james jamerson for instance every single thing he played supported the record and the production and the song it just happened to be busy but there was such a high level of a ensemble awareness and arrangement awareness and like uh listening that it fit you know it's like the problem is not the number of notes the problem is insufficient awareness of your surroundings and insufficient engagement with like the your collaborators you know mm-hmm. and so that's why it always kind of I always kind of get a little bummed when I hear a well-meaning teacher tell a student to leave more space, you know, because it's like they can, they can contrive to do that, but it's not going to make the music better unless the listening is there. It's sort of like this for me about, it's like if I were having trouble sleeping um, and I just laid down at night, I was like, okay, I'm going to reduce my breathing rate and I'm going to move my eyes really fast. That's not going to help me go to sleep. You know, it's like just because we've identified that such and such leaves a lot of space or whatever, that doesn't mean that like deciding to leave space is going to make you a better ensemble player. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I always felt like um, this leave space mantra, you know, when I, I always read it as meaning um, always be really scared to play anything, <laughs> you know. <laughs> like at any moment if you do anything assertive you know you should be scared but you know i uh uh i don't play with them anymore but in the first few years i was in hanover i was playing with this um improvising not exactly big band bigish band um we would do a concert once a month and um with special guests it was the tone hall and orchestra and uh uh well, I don't know if anybody here in Hanover will listen to this, but I'll be talking about people personally. There's this tenor player uh, who also was kind of a, um, well, it's besides the point, but there was this tenor player, Felix, and he just has a very, like, um, not aggressive, but very, uh, uh, he has quite a confident personality. You know what I mean? He's a nice guy. I like him. He's the kind of guy that, to a more timid person might come off as an asshole, but I, you know what I mean? But he's really just, what's the correct word I'm looking for? Uh, uh, gregarious. He's gregarious uh, and a bit assertive, you know? Assertive, yeah. And, and he's the same musically and he's a really good player, you know? 
and it was um well now i'm i don't want to be too negative but i i will i will assert some opinions uh what i like about the american free jazz tradition is that it's it's got this sort of ecstatic thing that probably has something to do with black gospel church background among other things and um the german there is some really great things in the german free jazz tradition but i would to my from my taste the, it's marked a bit over here by a more of an intellectual approach which has a tendency to be trepidatious uh -huh. and at times in this orchestra we always had guests guest leaders so it, it would vary from time to time but it was i was very often very frustrated because i felt like we were all being encouraged to be really terrified to play anything you know what i mean and a lot of the conductors would really say this very directly you know they would say like and i mean we had many different guest conductors and i don't know how many of them said the same thing as if they were the first one to think of it like before you play a sound i want you to be really certain that this is the right sound and you know and i thought like but the only thing that would result from this is that we would play this concert where everybody was completely terrified to play at all you know and it was just terrifying and but this guy's elix you know I don't know. He just, I don't know. He was cool, you know, because we would all be bored. We would, I don't, we'd all be scared and not playing anything. And, um, and then he would just, I guess he would just get sick of that shit and he would just bust out with a great solo. You know what I mean? And I always was, ah, great, cool. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, I was always scared to be the one to do it because I, I was the only electric instrument in the group. And, uh, man, sometimes it's a real burden to be an electric guitar player around a bunch of guys who don't play electric instruments or who don't have any experience with rock and roll because you know i always feel like i know i'm going to be told that i'm too loud like yeah, here's the thing with guitar right like because there is a volume knob yeah people think first of all because you have an amp there there's a cognitive bias that you're too loud before you've played anything that's right and because you have a knob they think that that changing your ensemble blend is as simple as turning the knob down you know, right. but it's not. If I turn the knob down and I still sound quieter than I want to sound, I'm just going to subconsciously play harder. And if I turn the knob up, I'm going to play lighter. It's like, I'm like, the ensemble blend is not the knob. The ensemble blend is like the ears and the sensibility. It's like, you stand a much better chance of getting me to blend differently by, by tilting my amp up toward my ears or like do it. You know what I mean? Doing something that changes the way I relate to the sound that's being produced. That's true. But it's like the, the funniest one to me, the example of the, the guitar player is too loud bias is um, when we were in school together in college, I was playing in the one of the big bands and the director was Jim Riggs, who you may remember. Mm -hmm. And he was like notorious for telling guitar players to turn down all the time. Mm -hmm. So there was this like one phase of the semester where we were playing like mostly Count Basie style material. Mm -hmm. And so I borrowed from Lynn Seaton. I didn't own an acoustic arch top at the time, but Lynn Seaton had like a cheap plywood Gibson L48 from mm -hmm. forever ago. The top had been like caved in. So it like wasn't even, it had flat wounds on it for some reason. Like it wasn't even as loud as it should have been. Yeah. And I was like, playing that in the big band and the amp was still sitting there and Jim Riggs asked me to turn the amp down. <laughs> but like, I was, I was like, 
I'm acoustic. And so like I told Lynn Seaton that who had loaned me the guitar and he high-fived me. That's He's like, that, that's how you play rhythm guitar. <laughs> nice. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. I'm always getting told to, you know, that my amp's making a sound, you know what I mean? Mm. <laughs> I'm like, come on, man, it's tube amp, you know, I got, God, come on, it makes noise. I don't know. Sometimes I just be like, come on, everybody needs to go play in a rock and roll band one time. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's funny, man, because to me, like all of that stuff is part of the electric guitar. You know, it's like people run themselves ragged and spend all this money trying to get a single coil pickup that sounds almost like a Strat pickup, but doesn't hum or whatever, you know, yeah. to me, it's just like eh, Strat's hum. It's like we like we're dealing with extremely primitive technology. It's an unbalanced, high impedance run straight into a tube amp it has lots of capacitance uh, we're using a lot of times single coils of wire that are very susceptible to interference and we're using them in proximity to amps that have big power transformers that radiate all this hum energy it's just uh, you know what i mean it's like sometimes a reed squeaks sometimes a like a trumpet blats and sometimes a bow scrapes and like sometimes a guitar hums it's just like you know what i mean it's i i never much related to the obsession with trying to get it very quiet you know yeah yeah <laughs> because to me it's like we we tried that like les paul had the uh he invented the or didn't invent but like you know he developed in conjunction with Gibson in the seventies, the Les Paul recording or whatever that had a low impedance pickups. I think it even had an XLR cable. Oh, in. Oh my God. I, yeah. I might be wrong about that, but yeah. basically it was just like designed to take advantage of common mode rejection. Like we do in microphones and just like, you know, send a low impedance signal so that you didn't need to use a DI box or an amp. You could just plug straight into a mic preamp. And mm -hmm. Of course, nobody wanted that because by that point, that wasn't what the electric guitar meant culturally. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. the electric guitar is highly classicized at this point, and it already pretty much was by the 1970s, if you think about it. You know, yeah, that's like, definitely true. Like it's it, it's uh, it's funny. the The electric guitar's role and significance culturally has changed so much within our lifetime, but particularly within the last 20 years. You know. It just means something entirely different, you know, broadly. Yeah, I have no idea what it means now. I also, um, uh, this is something that's very interesting to me teaching as well. Like, I mean, at some point I thought about, um, uh, when I was traveling around with this rock and roll band, I was kind of thinking about this idea of rock stars. And I was thinking like, I think the real, I think the rock stars now, oops, you there? Hello? I'm here. I just had to reset my video because it froze. Oh. Sorry. I mean, I think the real rock stars now are like DJs. I mean, as far as oh. the people and as far as like any music that has cultural relevance to younger people in terms of not just in terms of music itself, but in terms of a scene mm -hmm. and that's um, uh, yeah, it's not rock and roll. It's, it's DJ stuff. And uh, Oh, yeah. No, it hasn't been rock and roll since... 2005 at the latest no. i'd say and i don't know hardly anything about the dj scene you know maybe it's maybe it's it might be far cooler than i give it credit for i haven't investigated it i'm yeah negative, I, th but. I think 
I think there's a lot of amazing music happening right now. You know what I mean? It's just like, I'm, I'm kind of trying to guard myself as I like coast into my forties against, against like checking out. Cause there's so much that's happening, you know, and it's mm. vital. And like so many things are accessible. Like for instance, I feel like in the 20th century, like the reason the guitar became so important is because it was accessible, you know, like you yeah. could buy a cheap, even like very early on in the 1920s, 1930s, like if you didn't have very much money, you could still probably afford like a Stella or a Harmony flat top, you know, one of like yeah. one of these with the, with like the, the three bolts that bolts that like you could still afford oh, yeah. this you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and, um, and I, now some collectors paying like 3000 for that thing. Yeah. Right. Exactly. No, but that's, that's why it became the, I guess you could call it the, I hesitate to use the word folk instrument because well, that's right. loaded word. And I don't make any distinction between quote unquote, like serious or classical music and quote unquote folk or pop music. I'd see that complete that distinction completely as an artificial one uh, that, uh, I, I i hear that word differently now because in german you have this word das folk uh-huh and which means the people uh-huh the word's a little bit loaded because of how it was used in the 1930s sure. so, yes but just as a word the meaning of the word means like the people you uh -huh. know what i mean so when I think of folk music, I just, oh, the music that the people makes. Yeah, exactly. But you know what I mean? I think all music is music that people make and all music is for the people, you know? But, but anyway, I was sorry, I'm on a tangent. But what I was saying is, is like much like the guitar, much what the guitar did in the 20th century, the laptop digital audio workstation is doing for the 21st, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like I have a nephew who's 16 years old. He got, he's like, hugely into music hip-hop specifically and got fruity loops you know for mm. christmas two years ago and like all he does is sit in his room and like and make stuff make tracks make beats collaborate with other people and it's like it was easy it was a couple hundred bucks it was a christmas present you know yeah. And he gradually adds to it. Like I sent him a microphone that I had that was laying around that was extra. So now he, he also has a little guitar and an amp that he can play a little. And mm -hmm. he has a keyboard that he can play a little because he took piano lessons as a kid. And it's just like all the, it's not like he plays one instrument. It's like he plays Fruity Loops and he has all these other, you know, older instruments that are like part of his process. And it's so accessible. And I think that's where so much of the vital work is being done just for the same reason that the guitar was the center of so much vital work, you know, mm. eight years ago or whatever. It's interesting that you mentioned that just a couple of days ago, I was listening to a recording of an interview with Kenny Burrell mm. and, um, and uh, the interviewer who I think is the head of the jazz department at NYU asked him, Uh, what was going on in Detroit? Why, why, why was there this generation of, of, of great jazz players uh, in his time coming out of Detroit? And he said, um, and the interviewer said, you know, did this have something to do with like the music education in the schools or something like this? And Kenny Burrell said, no, there wasn't anything particular about that. It was the fact that the automobile industry allowed working class families to be able to afford an instrument. Mm. Not that they, not, I mean, obviously what he said, you know, they, they, not that they were all getting rich, but that the automobile industry allowed that, that sort of um, uh, demographic of people to uh, yeah just to afford instruments, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's very interesting how much, I mean, it's just like, how could music not reflect what's going on in the world of like people who are making it, you know? Yeah, and it shouldn't, you know, it shouldn't reflect anything else, you know? Actually, this, this, this brings up something I've been thinking about. It's been stuck in my head for years. Like, um, yeah. I was hanging out with Adam on the beach in Rockaway Beach. Like, that was 2000 and maybe 13 or something like this. And he was talking about, do you know the bass player, Ratso Harris? Yeah, not personally. I don't think we've ever played together or anything, but I know who he is. Yeah, I don't know him personally either, but I do know he's he's definitely an old school, like gigging musician. You know what I mean? And uh, I saw him one time playing at a club in Williamsburg. And this was back when people still had flip phones, you know? And there were some European tourists who were like taking a video with a flip phone. You know, that video is going to look and sound like garbage. You know what I mean? And Ratso stopped playing. And he said, I don't have a recording contract with you guys. So Ratso is this type of uh, uh, old school gigging guy, you know what I mean? And plays by those rules. But so Adam was talking about him and said, um, oh, you know, Ratso said um, in the internet era, all music is going to become folk music. Mm. And then it was funny because I think, I thought when I heard that, I think, I think when Ratso said that, he meant that disparagingly as a bad thing. Oh. But I don't see how that can be a bad thing. It sounds like a really nice yeah. thing to me. You know what and I mean? I, and to tell you the truth, I think that it's always been true. You know, I think like these distinctions where we sort of try to, it, it goes back to like the, you know, I mean, it doesn't, it goes back further than this, but like thinking for a second about like, um, Schenker, like the music theorist, you mm -hmm. know, and, and the concept of like masterworks and masters, you know, yeah, it's a, it's a thing of class, you know, um, and I see it as an artificial distinction. I don't really see anything different. You know what I mean? If it just strictly musically, yeah. uh, you know what I mean? It's like, but from something in a concert hall or like a dingy club, like, it's all music, you know. I yeah, mean, that sounds yeah. so trite and corny, but like, yeah, it's cliche, but yeah, but but no, like, I'm I mean that deeper than I think the way that's usually <laughs> yeah, meant. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's like there's a whole lot of like baggage that we attach to music because music has at least historically been so important to the human experience. We tend to attach these other things to it, you know, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. that are. You know what I mean? A lot of times, a distraction, frankly, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw a um, quote from Eric Dolphy where he was talking about that. I think he was, somebody asked him about some session he did where he had played some, you know, boogaloo tune. And he said, like, well, man, like, you don't, you don't know, like, anything about the depth of that music until you try to play it, mm. you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want to take anything away, obviously, like if I hear, you know, like uh, something from Stravinsky or something like I, I, I don't want to disparage that as like masterwork, you know what I mean? But yeah, like you're saying, the fact that it's a masterwork, I'm just using it as an example, but it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that it's, um, well, I don't know. I want to backtrack. I don't, maybe I'm going to get into some territory where I say something I don't really believe. I mean, like, I do it all the time. 
<laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, um, I just think for me, it's like it's it's a source of bias, you know. Mm-hmm. And there are some sorts of cognitive bias that I find enjoyable. Like if I walk into a place where somebody's playing music and they look cool as shit, they're like dressed in some crazy shit and uh, that I've never seen anybody wearing. And I'm like, wow, this is about to sound awesome. Yeah. Like I enjoy yeah. that because to me, that feels like part of the art. You know what I mean? It's like part of the experience, but it's like, if it starts with somebody telling me like in, you know, with each word capitalized, this is very important music by a very important composer. Mm-hmm. It kind of spoils my experience of discovery when I listen to it, you know? Mm-hmm. This reminds me of something my brother told me not long ago. He said, oh, man, uh, I was walking uh, down Christopher Street and we passed this club and uh, out of the corner of my eye, I saw through the window the most outrageously loud orange pants I've ever seen in my life. And I thought, who could be wearing these pants? And I looked and it was Brad Williams. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'll take that (laughs) with pride. I like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. One time I was wearing just some of just something that I wear and I was on the subway and somebody's like, yo, are those pajamas? Yeah. No. I assume that you know as much about the pedigree of your clothing as you do about your man. I was in guitars and not, I not quite. I, I sort of wish my, my goal is see basically what it was is when I was little, like, and I would like look through my, my mom and dad had the same closet, you know, and um, I always found my mom's clothes more interesting than my dad's, you know, uh-huh. and I sort of carried that over into adulthood. But like my dad had some interesting things that I really liked, um, like some super I mean, because you know what I mean? Like he was, you know, he was like a young adult in the late 1960s, early 1970s. So it was all of that. Mm. And then like one day it was just all gone. My mom had just like taken it all and, and donated it all, you know. Okay. And, and to like the seven-year-old version of myself, it just seemed like such a great loss that I think I've spent the rest of my life trying to recover that feeling, you know? Oh, nice, man. Oh, shit. Yeah. But, yeah, no, I think like just getting back to sources of bias, I think mm, yeah. like we can't divorce the history of music from the history of the culture in which it existed. And like at least here in the West – um, we've got a long, unfortunate history of, you know, various types of like racism and colonialism. And I think even the way that we conceive of and teach the blues mm-hmm. to this day is completely malformed as a result of that legacy. Um, the idea that like, even that like, in a, if you go to get a university jazz degree, like they they may say, well, music theory doesn't explain the blues very well, you know, or like or like we're going to start with the blues. The blues is easy. Anybody can play the blues. You know, it's it all seems to kind of characterize the blues as this some sort of like deviant thing, or like deviation and also extremely primitive and simple at the same time. But it's neither of those things. It's like a, a complete and rich system of making music that some heroes like like Duke Ellington and Mingus managed to merge with like Western tonal harmony in this seamless integrated way where like these two 
distinct systems kind of became this one mega system. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, we don't tend to characterize it that way. And we never tend to like dig deeply into the mechanics of blues or like blues harmony or blues theory. Even just like the concept of a blue note as a tunable pitch is controversial in like a Western university environment. They're just like, oh, it's just like in the cracks, you know? And it's like, well, no, it's very not. Like a, a blue minor third is a seventh partial derived, you know, consonants, as a matter of fact, that can like lock in with overtones in the same way that singing a perfect fifth can or a major mm -hmm. third. Yeah. And, but like for some reason, it, and I think it just, you can't help but get the feeling that it's underpinned with just this tendency to dismiss it because it's not from the, you know, the Shinkarian masters or of like, you know, European heritage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It reminds me of um, something I was reading. I uh, was listening to some field recordings of some Serbian folk music and, um, Oh my God, that sucks outrageous. But they were uh, talking about a guy who's a, a folk music and a folk musician in, in Serbia and, and considered, you know, in that in that realm to be a master, you know. And uh, and so he was he was doing some recordings and he was invited to somewhere I forget where in Western Europe and and uh, as a kind of an honored guest, and um, and so they took him to a concert of a Beethoven symphony, and uh, they asked him afterwards what he thought about it and he said um well um it was very interesting but rather boring don't you think <laughs> you know and just the, his set of criteria was different i mean you know beethoven is a good example because uh i mean there's a lot of classical music that probably a lot of people would find boring but beethoven is never really one who's categorized as boring you know right. what i mean but yeah. just this guy you know if you listen to the, this the Serbian folk music that he's playing it's it's similar to the blues in the sense that the interest what's interesting in that music is not the harmonic movement that's going on it's basically sticking to a pretty fixed set of notes you know but um but the amount of inflection that a person could put into one note or as you're talking about the blues for, for some reason it's going what's going through my head is the opening to that uh, Freddie King track going down yeah and it's like well, it's just like the piano is just playing eighth notes. You know, it's just, I mean, it's one chord just going. And it's not even, there's no variation in inflection. It's like very even. And like that shit comes on and I'm like jumping through the roof. You know what I mean? Like, oh man. Or like, I remember like, what's that track? I only get this feeling when I'm in Memphis driving around in my mom's big ass old 1990, whatever Mercury. You know what I mean? It's a huge ass boat. And yeah. like listening to uh, uh, the radio station. And I was in the car there, you know, driving around 40 miles an hour, you know, with nothing to do. And uh, which is a feeling that I only get in Memphis. Yeah. <laughs> driving the Mercury. But like uh, that, that Wilson Pickett tune came on, 99 and a half. Per yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember I was punching the roof of the car. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I could, you know, it was just compulsive punching the roof, you know? Ah! <laughs> <laughs> and why you know i listen to you know i listen listen to it and i'm like i don't know i mean what's happening here i don't i don't know not much really nothing yeah. so much going on but i gotta like punch the roof of the car you know what i mean and uh 
Yeah, but even like you were talking about the uh, the, the Beethoven symphony being characterized as rather boring, you know? Mm-hmm. And I sort of wonder like if if he would have felt that way if he had actually seen it in the period with Beethoven conducting, you know, like what, like how much have we stripped out of historic music over time? Because we don't really, because our, I guess the way we perform very old literature now kind of reflects the values that we have now. And also like that's built upon the values of, of everything intermediate, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So who knows how much vitality has been stripped out or sort of eroded away from that literature, from the speaking strictly of like, I guess, performance practice, you would call it in school, you know, like what it looks and feels like to experience that music getting made might not be the same now as it was when that music was like originally written, you know, certainly not. And it's weird the way we sort of kind of, try to distill the music down to what we can replicate now, you know? Yeah. And what, uh, like, is it, you know, because we say it's Beethoven now, mm-hmm. but like, I wonder how much it really has to do in terms of like the spirit of what's getting performed and everything that's not like the dots and stems on the page compared to what it was contemporaneous to its I guess like Genesis or whatever, you know, definitely. Um, I mean, I can't get into too many details on this before I'm talking about things I have no idea about, but I know that, um, never scared me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. In the classical period, a lot of music would have been written for and performed by people who we would call amateurs mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that, uh, yeah, very many, well, you know, what's interesting is that if you read like a novel, which is meant just for a general readership, written like in the 19th century, a time when reading novels was the equivalent of like watching TV, mm-hmm. not considered like it's something it was considered almost like a lazy thing to sit around and do. Mm-hmm. And it's a novel. So it's a novel for lazy TV watchers, you know, in the 19th century. And if they happen to have some reason to make a reference to I've read several examples where they would refer to something that today would only be known by a person with a training in music. Mm. And so they, but they're throwing it in there. You know, I might, I've seen it thrown in as an, as a metaphor, you know, for something else, you know, and, um, and which gave me the sense that they, you know, at that time, this theoretical knowledge would have simply been much more common knowledge, you know, and um, I think education in the humanities was a bigger component at basically all times, <laughs> or you know what I mean, like a hundred years ago, a broad-based education com- like included the humanities to a degree that it doesn't now. Yeah, yeah, but also, you know, um, think about the extent to which people, maybe of our basic generation, give or take 50 years, are intimidated by sheet music mm-hmm. I am. simply because they've always had the impression that that's the domain of professionals and right. trained people whereas right. like a person like you're talking about fruity loops i've never heard yeah. fruity loops but where yeah. a person fruity i'm sure that getting into the intricacies of fruity loops is every bit as challenging or not challenging but every bit as 
uh, it, it can get every bit as advanced as, as reading sure. difficult sheet music or learning difficult harmony, but a person who, it, when, you have, when you have the attitude that something is just something cool that all the cool kids do, mm-hmm. then your ability to do it is gonna, you're gonna be, it's gonna be much easier Definitely. When you start with the, I mean, I've, also, I've, I've even wondered this about musical families, you know, like, mm-hmm. I don't know if this is true. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's just genetics. I don't know. But I always think like, you, you're going to look at in any subject, it doesn't matter if it's math or whatever, like, or playing basketball. Like if you look at your environment, you're going to observe a certain level, which is just considered par. Mm-hmm. And like, if you're kind of an underachiever in that field, you'll be below that par. Or if you're an overachiever, you'll be above that par. But like, if the par is high, you know what I mean? Even if you're then, even if you're just kind of average, you're still going to excel, you know? And so like if sheet music and, and playing what we now call classical music was just simply the thing that people did in their spare time, then the average person would have, just approached it with the sense that, well, this is something everybody can do. You know what right. I mean? And some, yeah. of course, will be better than others, you know? Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I, I think that this is one of the reasons why classical music probably now is approached, is, is kind of dealt with nervously. <laughs> yeah, right. There does seem to, I mean, I just, I can only really speak from my experience seeing concerts and like I've never been a cla- like a performer of like classical music or concert music or whatever. So just you know, going to Avery Fisher Hall and being in college are pretty much my only experiences. But I noticed when I was in college, there was a lot of anxiety. There was like a palpable anxiety, you know. Oh yeah. But yeah, talking about what you're talking about about you know like a musical family or whatever, I sort of always felt like what people call talent or a gift, like the gift is the curiosity and the interest in it, you know? Mm. And I think when you're around something a lot, it's very easy to get interested in something that you're around a lot, you know, Mm. like, like my uncle raced cars. He was like a bracket racer, like a drag racer. And so as a result, when I was a kid, I was obsessed with fast cars because that was the coolest shit that was going on in my immediate environment when I was five years old, you know? Mm. And if, if on the other hand, like my dad or my uncle had been like a, you know, a professional musician, that certainly would have been the thing that captured. I mean, for me, the thing that got me into music was I saw Chuck Berry on TV Mm-hmm. And then my parents watched Hee Haw, like the country variety show. And there was always like Roy Clark just playing his ass off on that. And like, that's what got me interested in guitar was like those two things, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But, like imagine if that had been in my home, that would have been a whole other fascination. Yeah, definitely. 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 Yeah. I have this with my kid, you know, I I feel like, I don't, you know how it is in conversations, if you start off on one thing, then you're like, you stick with that thing. And now I keep thinking about books I've read. Oh. I feel like I want to plug all these different books. But I was reading this book. 
oh, shit, I can't remember the name, but um, the guy was putting forth a proposition that since the time of the industrial revolution, children have, for the most part, stopped seeing what their fathers do when they go to work. Hmm. Uh, and before the industrial revolution, most workers would have, have been doing a type of ag agricultural work and, and children would have participated and they would have at least been just around to see what's going on. And that the whole system of people going to factories and going to jobs like this made work itself a very mysterious thing to children and also a very alienating thing. And I mean, I don't say, you know, the guy who wrote this book is like a, probably has a lot of economic and political ideas that I would ultimately disagree with. Mm. I think the industrial revolution, well, who cares? It happened. What's, what's the use of you know, crying about it? It happened. But I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not crying about it, but I mean, um, it is, you know, I, but the proposition that, that, that this made work into something that children maybe distrusted, you know, this place where their father just disappeared mm -hmm. and came home tired and in a bad mood. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Pro probably did lead to a lot of the sense of mistrust of, of work and, and even of fathers, you know, mm. and, um, and this is one thing I'm really grateful for. You know, I, my studio where I teach and where I do, where I keep all my instruments and where I play and where I hang out and where I'm sitting right now. And where I also now have this espresso bar is like three doors down from where I live mm. and where I live is across the street from my son's kindergarten, you know, mm. and, and I'm on the ground floor and I have these windows. And so, you know, my son knows exactly what I do, you know, and I, I think it's cool that, you know, he, he has not shown a particularly strong interest in music. I mean, somewhat, but not particularly strong. Right. He gets a bit annoyed at me when I play music. <laughs> because he wants to hang out with me yeah. i bought a cheap guitar and put it in his room he never touches it you know yeah. what i mean and i really don't care like i i have no expectation to me whether or not he takes up an interest in music or plays i do not care what i care is the framework it's kind of like what you're saying it's like what's the feeling around the music i don't care I, to me music is not important like what's around it you know yeah yeah and to me i only want this to, my son to be able to see not that dad plays the guitar or dad plays music i just want him to see like dad does something you know what i mean like uh like i see what dad does and dad's creative you know what i mean and to me even <laughs> the coffee bar is creative you know or like i don't know even you know when cooking is creative you know like i just want my my kid to see you know like it's possible to be creative and, yeah, and to imagine possibilities i think it's so much easier to imagine possibilities when you have a as a young person when you have a connection and like you're talking about like a direct exposure to somebody like you know, doing something because my experience, you know, with my father was very different from what you described. Like, mm -hmm. I still don't know what my dad did when he went to work. I know it had something to do with grocery stores or whatever. And like, he came home very tired and with no energy for anything else, you yeah. know, and that, that's, yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So it's like, on the other hand, you know, like, man, I have a, you know, I've, I do feel like that's more than genetics or whatever. That's why music runs in families. I mean, I have nothing empirical, empirical to back that up, but okay. it's just always been my hunch that it's just like, it's around, like the relationship with the music is so healthy, you know, because it's not as fraught 
you know, because yeah. it's, it's always been around and it's always been, you know, mostly positive associations one would assume. Yeah. 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 But I think maybe that can translate to broader creativity. You know what I mean? Like maybe your son will end up pursuing some other creative field and his relationship with the act of creating will be informed by what he witnesses now, you know? Yeah. That's what I'm saying. You know, I just want him to know that it's like, you can do it, you know? Yeah. Like, um, that you can, yeah, that you can do what you want, you know? Um, I mean, you know, whatever, not that I'm, I don't know that I'm most just just astonishing role model, but <laughs> but uh, at least I feel good about knowing that I I uh, feel like I can let my my imagination manifest, you know. Yeah, and you're available. I think that that says a lot, you know. Just like being available, I think emotional availability is so important. To you know, I've only ever been a young person. I don't have any kids, but just thinking back to when I was young, the things that meant a lot to me were when I felt like the people in my life who were raising me, my parents were available, you know, both literally available and also emotionally available. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. What is this? This is something my brother told me about once years ago. He was, had read some study where they plotted out like all the countries or many of the countries of the world, uh, on an X, Y axis and, and, um, uh, they were plotting where the people are the happiest, you know, and then w on the other axis, they were talking about self-expression. And then the way he, well, I mean, he conveyed this to me, but he told me what they meant by this in, in terms of self-expression is not what we would think about it in terms of, you know, freedom of the press or uh, a right to state your opinions or something like this. But he was saying the, the metaphor that he used, he said, you know, it's like if you were to have a total emotional breakdown today, you know, where you were like sobbing and wailing, like tomorrow, would you still be able to be in your community and not be looked at as being a freak or somebody would you feel ashamed you know what i mean and um i mean i remember you know because the, the the two countries he said that's scored very high on happiness and the self-expression were nigeria and and puerto rico and i remember oh. i don't have a whole lot of experience with nigerians but i was living in this puerto rican neighborhood for a long time in brooklyn and i remember my neighbors like it was such an educational experience you know like oh my god just listening to them like the 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 degree to which they would go from screaming to laughing to being nice to being mean it was to me it was far more than i could handle but but it did make me think like yeah like i don't know like if i were to have like do i feel like i could have a real emotional breakdown in front of my friends you know mm -hmm. what i mean like uh um i mean you know now i'm getting into a different territory but living in germany too especially a topic that comes up or that, you know, it's been a, a difference in learning here is also the degree to which people are naked around each other. <laughs> like my girlfriend can't believe it that I've like barely ever seen any of my friends naked. <laughs> wow. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and especially not my female friends, you know, but even my male friends is like, I don't think I've seen, you know, any of my, I've, I have like one male friend who I've seen naked and he's not, 
and he's a South African, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and, uh, um, yeah, but it, it, with, with music, I remember when I was, a, you know, if my mom's listening to this, I, you know, I don't mean it to be criticism of her, of her more of, it's just like our society. Yeah. When I was young, she would get really frustrated with me because she would always want me to play for her. Mm. And she would get frustrated at me because she'd say, oh, I'm paying for these lessons and like, you won't let me hear you. And at that time, I had the very, very genuine feeling that to play music in front of her, I mean, it sounds weird, but this is what went through my head at the time, that to play music in front of her would have been similar to exhibiting my sexuality in front of her. Right, yeah. I cannot do this in front of my mother. You know what I mean? And... um, for me, it's just about doing it for one individual is much more intimidating. Like I'll play on a stage in front of 5,000 people all alone by myself, do whatever, but like get me in a room with one person saying, play something for me. And I, I, that's much more anxious. It's a much more anxious situation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, this is, uh, man, this is what I took away from Connie Crothers, man. Like, um, man, I'm sure you had the same experience studying with her, but Oh my God. Oh my God. That's unbelievable what she could do. Like I would go in there for a lesson and she would say, so you want to play, play a bit, you know? And, uh, and then I would do like solo, you know, play solo improvisation. Of course, I'm thinking the whole time that she's going to be judging my technique and 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 seeing you know what to what degree I have any you know grasp of of, of harmony and, and melodicism and technique and blah blah blah, and um, and then I would play and she would listen and then I would get done playing and she would just still be sitting there, and then she would say after a bit, so how'd that feel? Yeah. <laughs> You know, and it was a genuine question, not yeah. a loaded question, not a rhetorical yeah. question. She only wanted to know, really. And and uh, and it was the feeling I'm allowed to do this. Yes. That's what I experienced with her. I am allowed to play, you know, mm. and just that, man, that changed my life, you know. Mm. Yeah, it's so fascinating. I had the uh, very similar experience with her, obviously, and and received that question many times and always tried my best to answer it in good faith, you know. Um, but it's I'm kind of glad to hear you sort of recall that because it kind of reminds me I need to check in with myself more after I play, you know, like, how did that feel? Like, I feel like a lot of times I just like, I'm going to sit this here and then I just move on, you know, mm-hmm. and uh I'm not often like uh, exercising my awareness of like how it, how it felt, you know, mm-hmm. like I may be aware of how it feels in the moment, but once the moment's passed, I've like moved on. I never reflect, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. It's funny. I have this with this banjo. I don't know what it is. Me and this banjo. <laughs> Actually, yeah. but here's what it is. Now I'm going to rag on Adam for a second. Like, uh, uh, you know, I like I like playing with open tunings. I like playing finger style. I like playing uh, where I play in a mode and don't move out of the mode. And so uh, uh, 
I went to a music store and I played a banjo and I thought, oh man, that's it. I got to have a banjo, man. That's what's up. And, uh, and I, I bought a banjo, uh, like a cool open back one with nylon strings and, um, has a very personal, I like the, I like the open back cause it sends the sound back to me. It right. Right. Pumps the sound back into my stomach, you know, anyway. And, but I pick, I got this banjo and I thought I'm not a banjo player. I don't actually, I don't even listen to much bluegrass or banjo music. I have zero intention of learning the classical literature of the banjo. I have zero interest in knowing what banjo players are supposed to know. I actually have zero interest in playing the banjo for anybody, you know? And I had zero obligation with this thing. You know what I mean? And I would sit around at home and just play the banjo all day long. You know what I mean? All day. And, uh, and I thought, oh, it's great. I said, I'm not, I'm done with the guitar, man. I'm just playing the banjo, man. That's what's up. And uh, anyway, but then I thought like, oh, well, like, let me make a couple of little, I'll put like a little video clip up and, uh, and I'll throw it on Instagram because <laughs> that's what everybody else does, you know? Yeah, of course. Yeah. And I made a little, a couple of little short clips and I threw them up on Instagram. And then <laughs> Adam <laughs> called me and he said like, I should maybe I shouldn't be revealing this on, on a public podcast, but I uh, he's, it out later if you want. But he said, um, "Oh man, like, do you want to record a solo banjo album for me for I, for this new label I'm doing?" And it was a really great on. I took it as a great compliment and a great encouragement, you know, especially coming from a player like as great as him. And ever since then, I cannot play the banjo. <laughs> Man, it's, it's funny. It's the psychology of this is very interesting, right? Like this is another thing that's like, I don't know, my mother's probably never going to listen to this or whatever. doesn't yeah. matter. Several years back, you know, my mom, my mom and dad are retired. And like when my mom retired, she like got into painting, you know, she got into like art, which I always feel like we could go on a whole thing about sort of like generational class gender things and how that like shape what people feel is available to them, you know, but for whatever reason, my mom had never allowed, I feel like my mom always had an interest in art and always uh, had a talent for it. But like, for some reason, like never allowed herself to, to express that very seriously mm -hmm. or very deeply. But then when she was retired and had all this time, she kind of got into it and she started painting and she did a couple of things and like, she got pretty good. And then like, my sister had a friend who like liked something she did and bought it from her. And it was like, my mom would just talk about, it. she got so into it. And so then at Christmas, like, I can't remember, I think it was one of my sisters. I don't think it was me, like bought her some art supplies for Christmas, like bought her like an easel and like some brushes and some stuff. Mm -hmm. She didn't paint shit after that. Mm -hmm. It was too much. Mm -hmm. Like it, it, like it, it broke the spell. It was like, it started, mm -hmm. I I'm projecting, but like my sense was is that it started to feel too fraught and too heavy and too much like an obligation or too much. Like maybe like we were expecting output, you know, like, because we, we had bought her these things, you know? So, and, and it just, it, it, it was not a source of joy anymore after that. And eventually, like, it, she filtered back into it. And she's doing it again. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I wonder if this was this banjo business, too. Like, I, I thought, I mean, maybe to me that instrument is too new. But I also thought, well, maybe there's a value to this. Like, maybe there's a value to moving past the naive, innocent 
thing. You know what I mean? And uh, so, you know, after, and Adam wasn't the only one. Also, like these guys I work with here in Hanover, we're starting a record label. Um, and they mentioned that too. Oh, maybe you want to do a banjo record. And so it was kind of the, the, the both of them put together and it just really paralyzed me. And when mm -hmm. I pick up the instrument, I immediately feel nervous and tense and all this. But, mm -hmm. um, and of course I do it all the time. It's, it's a horrible experience. Yeah. But, uh, but maybe there's something to that. I mean, maybe there's something to being pushed through that maturation. I shouldn't say, man, God, I mean, this is a new instrument to me. I'm not mature at it, but, but maybe well, there's value in that, you know? I think there's definitely value in what you're noticing your response to that stimulus is, you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. it's like whether or not it's actually going to end up being a, a net positive for your banjo playing, I can't say, but mm -hmm. it's definitely useful that you've noticed okay, I've had these people express this interest and it's made me feel this way and react this way. Like that's useful information mm, you know? mm. because you can like, cause you can do a lot of things. You can do anything you want with that information. You know, it's like, you know, you can try to figure out why it triggered that, you know, mm, mm. you know, there's something to this, like, um, I don't know if you've had this experience. I'd be curious to hear like, <laughs> I'm, I, I tell my students a lot of the times, like, there's a mode that you will go into if you're on stage doing something that you're, you know, that you don't feel, well, regardless, which you cannot fake, you cannot practice. And for example, I got a few years ago, I got invited, it was a cool experience. I got invited to play uh, guitar at a wedding in Cairo, which was very cool, but uh, to go to Cairo. But the point is, is that, you know, I don't, I don't do solo gigs. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's not something I'm used to. And I spent six weeks practicing repertoire for this wedding. And in that six weeks, I did not ever play through a song once without bungling it. Mm. Not mm -hmm. once. Right. And I was only supposed to play for a half an hour at this wedding. And honestly, like sitting here practicing for six weeks, but knowing that I was practicing for this wedding, I could not get through a tune. Mm -hmm. And then I went down to this wedding. And of course, in Egypt, they're not like really, they're not really into time. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? I was supposed to play for half an hour, but I was like more like an hour and a half because mm -hmm. they're not the time thing, you know? And uh, I played an hour and a half with no problem. You know what I mean? And I played all kinds of stuff and I didn't bunk. I mean, I played very fine and I didn't play any bum notes. And I felt very at ease, you know, and I thought in the whole of six weeks of practicing, I couldn't even play a tune. Yep. And it's, uh, a it's again, a difference, not of degree, but of type, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. because it's, it's like, I think one of the one of the biggest sort of naive mistakes a lot of people make who don't do this every day. Mm -hmm. um, let's say there's like a manager who's coordinating a rehearsal schedule or like, a new artist who's like hired a great band and is coordinating a rehearsal schedule for their debut show or whatever. Mm -hmm. There's one of the things that like you can't learn except by experience is that like past a little bit of rehearsal time, like more doesn't help and it doesn't make a difference at all because you cannot like, it's not like, 
we could rehearse literally. And I've done this with acts where like you literally relocate somewhere and do a month of rehearsals, you know, for a tour. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the first show is always still going to sound like a first show, you mm -hmm. know? And if you don't rehearse at all, by the third show of the tour, you're crushing. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's just one of those, it's just a fact of life. I can't explain it. I don't know, but it's like, it's just, it's not the same thing. Mm -hmm. Like, like I, I wouldn't trade one show in terms of like making a, making the music better. Let's say if you're like on tour playing the same music night after night, mm -hmm. I wouldn't trade one show for 30 rehearsals. It doesn't oh. do as much. It doesn't do the same thing, you know? No, not at all, man. Not at all. Not at all. Man, I, uh, I will always be grateful for one experience, man, when I was back in, uh, back in New York quite some years ago. I always, you know, I always wanted to sing, but I never felt good about my singing. <laughs> and well, I felt good about it as long as I didn't record it. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as I recorded. But, you know, like I was, I had, I was very timid about singing if anybody was around. And then I got involved with this woman who was doing like performance art. And um, I mean, it's not my, the performance art thing was not my thing, but she was very good at booking. So it was something to do. Like it was interesting just to be around the scene. And um, she, she got us booked at a, uh, uh, at a festival in Manhattan. And uh, she had this, this idea that she wanted to do this song. And I was supposed to, uh, started off by walking out onto the stage alone with no microphone, with an acoustic guitar, but not plugged in and, um, and start singing, you know? And of course, like, you know, you can really hide behind a microphone, like, or a band, you know, I think that, it, you know, if you would ask me to sing with a band and a mic and electric guitars, like I would have been like, okay to do it, you know? But like, I remember the, it was a theater in Manhattan and it was sold out. You know, and mm. I was standing backstage, like, and I looked out at the audience, and I thought, I, and I thought, like, I, I've never sung before in front of an audience at all, ever, <laughs> and now I have to just walk out onto a bare stage in front of a sold-out theater, without a microphone, and open my mouth and sing this, like, a ballad, mm -hmm. and at this moment, I realized there is only two options here. One is to go out on stage and capitulate and really like collapse into a bag of bones mm -hmm. on the floor. And the other is to give it like 500%. And those are the only two options, <laughs> you know? Well, it's and funny because like, what, like that anxiety and that fear, like it's like to do that requires such humility. And it's, it's a way that people don't normally like to go out on stage and completely just like be huge mm -hmm. requires such a humility of a type that most people do not understand, understand as humility when they see it from the outside, you know, mm -hmm. because like, I feel like there are two, two polarities of egotism, right? Mm -hmm. One, one is when you're like very stuck on yourself and you think you're just the greatest thing. Mm -hmm. And the other one is when you think that everybody is noticing all of your failures and judging you all the time. Mm -hmm. Right. Like that's all, that's just as self-absorbed and it, and it's just as, you know what I mean? Frankly, like 
nobody's going to notice Nobody's going to be as critical of you as you imagine that they're going to be. Nobody's going to be, you know what I mean? So like, if you find this place of humility, you can just, just go and give 500%. Like you Mm -hmm. said, like that's the humble state of being not modest, but humble, if that makes sense, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was just grateful for it because I didn't choose it. You know what I mean? I was really thrown into the, off into the deep end. And uh, yeah, and I open my mouth and I, I don't, I have no idea if I sang well, it's not, it's not, that's how, I, humility, right? that's not how I remember the experience. What I do yeah. remember is that I opened my mouth and I sang with no, with no holding back. Right. I have, that's all I know. But I also know that it was a beautiful experience. I, I liked it, you know. And I, but to <laughs> me, it's like, God, I'm like, I'm so envious because I struggle. Like I find that state of being to be more elusive for me than I wish it were, you know? You can't fake it. That's what I'm saying. You can't, f- I couldn't, I couldn't go out and schedule that. You know what I mean? Right. You can't fake it. It's like- yep. But, but just to be able to like fully give myself over to a moment with zero attachment to how I'm being perceived, zero uh intention to control how i'm perceived or mm. to like or to play well or to sing well or to just do a good job or to be thought of well like mm-hmm. i really struggle to let all that go with any sort of consistency but like when i do let it go it's usually in the context of a live performance where mm. It's the music is just happening. You know what I mean? It's like you're there, you're in there, and you're mixing it up, and like things are coming your way, mm-hmm. and like other people are tossing stuff at you, and you're reacting, and you're just in there. You're mixing it up, and you're in there. It's it's almost hard to be too self-critical in that moment, and I think that's kind of the power of of like group improvisation. And I use improvisation like very loosely. Like you can be playing within a framework that's composed. And still like the particulars of what's happening in the moment is intensely reactive, you know? Yeah. And that's the power of that. That's why I feel like so much transcendent music is made in w- with that as part of the process, you know, mm-hmm. because it's just, it's a state of being where like you're so much is coming your way and you're just in, you're just so involved in the muse, in the experience of mm-hmm. making music Mm-hmm. that it's hard to have that feeling that you had right before you walked out. It just immediately becomes the feeling you had when you started singing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. It's a nice feeling. It's a nice feeling. <laughs> man, I had this, a, a couple of years ago, I was leading this project where we were doing cover songs, which I, were, I was choosing. I was leading the, the, the thing. So I was choosing the songs. And there was this song. Have you ever heard of this group called the Roaches? It's women, their sisters. No. Uh, most of their songs I don't like, but they have this one song that's really, really cool. But they have this way of singing. Which that's how is, I feel about Rush. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, what's that cool song? But, oh, do you know, one time in the, back in the 90s, I was listening to Rush and this on a, on a church youth group trip, and this other girl heard it. And she said, are you listening to four non-blondes? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway they, they, but these girls they have this one song where they sing these notes where it's just these long notes with like a really sort of broad open throat really full open just laser beam anyway and I I, I, uh, 
I, I was in my studio kind of practicing this song, but not particularly loud. And then after that, I had a reason to go to a room, which I use with some people for something. And I went into this room and the room is in a building where everybody's already gone home. And the building is like in a back area behind other buildings. And basically what I mean is in this room, nobody could hear anything that I do. Nobody on earth, you know? And so I said, oh, cool. I'm going to go over to this room and I'm going to like sing this song and I'm just going to like let it out no matter what happens. Even if it sounds like a pig squealing, then at least I'll know what happens, you know? At least I'll know if I can sing that way, you know what I mean? And I couldn't do it. And I could not. And I was sitting there alone, like Wilson, like nobody's here. You were just in your studio singing this song anyway. Like, just try it one time as an experiment, you know? And I even thought, just just try t taking the approach of um, distancing yourself from your voice. Imagine your voice as, as an external object. You just want to know what it can do, you know what I mean? I'm not scared of doing that with a guitar. I'm not scared to take a guitar and turn the effect pedals all weird and hit it and see if some weird sound comes out and say, well, that sounds weird. You know what I mean? I'm not scared of it, good or bad, you know? I thought, why don't you just 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 try it once? And I couldn't, I could mm -hmm. not. So even alone, it's just, you know, it doesn't matter if the people are there or not, even alone, it was, it's the self thing. Like, mm -hmm. will I be, you know, will I be ashamed, you know? Uh, and I couldn't do it. You know? Yeah. Wow. What is that? What is man? Cause like I, I relate to that, you know, it's like, yeah, it's weird. Why should shame ever be a part of, of like singing alone? Like, but yeah. Wow. Yeah, man. Yeah. That's some shit. That's some shit. I'm going to go home to dinner pretty soon. So before I get off, then I'll switch over to professional radio moderator mode for all of the <laughs> two or three people who are listening. Yeah. <laughs> and just ask you the question. Uh, do you have any music you want to plug? Um, wow. I am right now. I've got um, a project that's mostly completed, but it's not out yet. So I can't really plug it, but I've got some, uh, some old music. I have a record from 2015 um, that's like a very straight ahead organ trio kind of thing called Lamar. That's oh, yeah. That one had a really cool cover photo. Yeah, right. You took that photo. That's right. That's <laughs> um, nothing I'm making now isn't any, <laughs> it sounds very much like that at all. So whatever comes next will be completely unrelated. I had a record um, in, I think I recorded, I was so young. I was, I think it was 2003 or 2004 called the Vostok record. I still that, have that CD. It's right next to me. Yeah. Uh -huh. like, I was, you know, it's funny at the time I finished that record and it came out and I was like, eh, I wasn't very proud of it. And so I didn't really do a lot to kind of push it, you know, it's a cool record, man. I listened to it the other day and I, it was sort of a powerful realization that all the things that made me insecure about it as a 23 year old, I realize now are actually the best parts of it. Like I, I mm -hmm. kind of, I've had enough distance from it now that like, man, I actually like feel okay about some of this, like strangely, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. It's cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah, man. But what I'm working on now in a way is much more a continuation of that than, than the last thing, which was just an anomaly. Are you, you going to put it out under your own name? Um, yeah. 
yeah, I'll put it out under my own name. Um, my full government name, Brad Allen Williams, which I only do because there's like 99 different musicians named Brad Williams and it just got, like it. it's got too much. Yeah. You know, but, my middle name is also Allen and I don't know why, but I, because there are not very many Wilson Novitskis in the world, mm-hmm. but I have a weird habit on all banking documents to always all of my bank cards have my full name i don't know why <laughs> for banking purposes i'm also wilson allen novitsky i thought you were going to tell me that um that you met another wilson allen novitsky no but i you know the magic of facebook is it does allow you to find all the other wilson novitskis in the world i used to like to think there were none but unfortunately there are a couple one is a, a young teenager in the dominican republic who's a, oh. a rapper who weirdly raps under the name wilson novitsky that's cool. And I think that, I don't know, all rappers have like these, these stage names. And this guy is like this Dominican kid. And he has this one track with, where it opens with the vocoder and he goes, Wilson, no whiskey. <laughs> and another guy is a guy in, um, in uh, uh, Angola, who I'm okay. friends with on Facebook only because he has the same name as me. And he's really into bodybuilding. And mm-hmm. he has this great post where he says, <laughs> God, Please let everything I eat today go to my butt. <laughs> well, here's, here's the other Wilson Novitsky. Here's the Wilson Novitskis of the world. When MySpace was new, I remember um, sitting with Bob Lanzetti, and he found he found this guy in Italy named Roberto Lanzetti, who was like a shred guitar player. Yeah, that's like yeah. Frank Zappa and the Francesco Zappa. Yeah, man. But I, speaking of like other Wilson Novitskis, this is not exactly that. But I remember when we were at North Texas, you told me this story. I didn't witness it. I want to see if you remember it, where I think it was your freshman year. You were walking around and constantly people were coming up to you going, James? And you'd be like, oh, fuck, no. I forgot about that. You're like, James? is like, no. And then you, and then the way you described it to me is you say, see this dude who looked exactly like you and you walk up to him and you go, James and he goes, You must be Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> I totally forgot about that. That's some shit. Yeah. Shit. Yeah. You also told me your first year at um I, I this it, you know when I think about the specificity of the things that I remember randomly about other people, it gives me anxiety because I wonder what random and potentially unflattering things someone might remember about me that I'd completely forgotten, you know. But I also you remember you describing to me that um, because we were in, you know, we were in North Texas and the Dallas Mavericks had just uh, I think Dirk Nowitzki had just this was, would have been around the year 2000. Right. Mm, or 99. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Dirk Nowitzki was and I remember you describing how like those games would be on somewhere and you would just hear hear your name like Nowitzki. Mm. You know, and that, that was the first for me in my entire life. Yeah. Yeah, man. I never had that. Uh, I was always very, um, I had a lot of regret over the fact that my name was not particularly interesting. Yeah, but, but for some reason, using all three of my names makes it at least somewhat memorable. I don't know. But I do remember one story about you, which is that Uh-oh. there was another Brad Williams who was a organ player in Dallas mm-hmm. and that there was some group, uh, they needed a, a a guy for a gig for the evening. Somebody asked somebody, do you have Brad Williams's number? And they got the wrong Brad Williams and they called you. And then that wound up being like a long-standing gig for you. Yeah, right. That happened. And you know, what's funny is to this day, like literally I have not lived in Dallas since 2005. So 16 years, like 
like me outside of Dallas is old enough to drive, you know, mm. and, and it still occasionally happens where I'll get a text from somebody and it won't even be like, it'll just be like, can you make a gig at the, at, at Sambuca in Addison tonight or whatever? And I'll be like, you got the wrong Brad Williams, you know, like it's like it happened, like at least within the last year, it's happened once. That's good, man. I guess the other Brad Williams is still having a fruitful career. Yeah. He's still working. Do you remember Drew Phelps? I remember the name. He was a bass player. He was like older than it. He was like grown and shit when we were uh, in yeah. college. And he has a twin brother, David Phelps, who's a badass guitar player here in New York City. Oh, um, but Drew Phelps always had these bands around Dallas. And um, there was prior to the Brad Williams we're talking about. And prior to me, there was another Brad Williams who I think lives in Chicago now, who's also a piano player. And Drew Phelps had like played with all of us at like some point, you know, he'd like played with every Brad Williams. Oh, nice. But I think there's a drummer in Kansas city named Brad Williams. I think um, there's more, there's a bunch of us. We're out here. Yeah. Yeah, man. I actually, I know, I know we probably got to wrap up, but I played an interesting gig. um, I, I guess about two years ago now, it just so happened that it was like Ben Williams was the band leader and Brett Williams was on keys. So that was Ben, Brett, and Brad. <laughs> oh man, oh man, y'all like uh, the weird Jackson family or something, <laughs> or like the Ramones. The Ramones, yeah. yeah. Ween. Remember Ween? Oh yeah, Dean Ween and Gene. Yeah. Was it Gene? Mean Ween. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was never. I was never like a fan. I was about to say I never liked that band. Yeah. Cool. All right, man. I'm gonna jump off the horn. I got. I think I have some dinner probably uh, around the corner. Cooking okay. Up. Cool. And it's cool to chat. Uh, send me if you want me to splice in some any of your music. Just send me some MP3s or something. Okay. And I'll splice it in. I will. Let me think about that. Yeah, I know what I'll send you. Cool. Uh, if you don't get it from me, or where do I do? Do I even have your email address anymore? It's just wilsonavitsky at gmail.com. That's easy. Okay, yeah, I'll send no, you some. No spaces or dashes or periods, just yeah, yeah. Cool, Brad, man, nice. Yeah, hopefully you can edit that down to about one third the length. <laughs> yeah, I know, but I like it. It had a good flow, so yeah, yeah. We'll see. If I can do anything, it's talk. Yeah, so, well, likewise, likewise. Yeah, yeah man. Man, good to catch up with you. You too, Brad. Man, it's good to see you. Yeah, you too. Talk to you right. soon. Yeah, tell Molly I said hey. Okay, I will. Cool. All right, bye. Talk to you later. Peace.